Hello there, welcome to the Skewer Podcast. The Skewer is a live monthly news review where we satirize the news of the previous month uh, with op-eds and debate. It's fun. Uh, we're every first Wednesday of the month at Cafe Mustache in Chicago. This particular uh, edition of the Skewer, our 11th, was recorded on September 7th, 2016. Enjoy! No, I'll continue, please. Okay, I'm going to forget that first one. Thank you, that was delightful. Welcome to the skewer, everybody. What is the skewer? Well, let me tell you, it's a live monthly satirical news review where we have people come up and review the news of the previous month, in this case, August 2016. Uh, this is just hilarious. We got some op-eds. We got some debates. I say some debates. I meant one debate. Uh, I'm your host, Tom Harrison, and I'm. Yeah. 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 You may have noticed that a lot of people really liked me, and also that a lot of people in the audience looked like me with various different wigs on. <laughs> Why could that be? All my siblings are here. Why would I mention that? It's because my sister Tessa is going to get married this Saturday. And now with some great segues, I'm just going to start reading this thing that I wrote on some paper. When I started this show with Eric Ruel, the original co-host, 11 months ago. I did, yeah. I didn't think, I did not think that 90% of the news that would occur between then and now would be about Donald fucking Trump. <laughs> National joke and hell's worst mistake. I, I really thought that I could have a fun new satire show without having to trot out here every month, let out a mournful sigh, and talk about the new goddamn vomit words to slither out of this asshole's mouth. <laughs> and yet, here I am. <laughs> this month was probably his worst yet. I wanted to do like a fun game this month where I would read a bunch of Trump news and I would make you like clap t- t- for which one you thought was made up. Eh? Fun, right? <laughs> but honestly, I could not come up with fake ones before worse shit would happen for real. <laughs> This month, he literally asked his supporters to murder Hillary Clinton with guns. He had his charitable organization proven to be acting illegally. He uh, quintupled his rent for his campaign HQ and his own Trump Tower once he started to pay it with campaign donations. He said that men who cheat on their wives cannot be trusted in positions of power, which... <laughs> <laughs> Nighttime. <laughs> he proved he was right about the media being corrupt and biased by hiring the head of Breitbart as his campaign manager, replacing the previous campaign manager who was just legitimately like a Russian spy, <laughs> uh, who in turn had replaced a campaign manager who was just a violent idiot thug. Of course, Breitbart being famous for leading the campaign, asking racists 
to harass the actress and comedian Leslie Jones to the point where this month her personal website was hacked and vandalized and had to be taken down. He also tweeted, and I quote, <clears throat> they will soon be calling me Mr. Brexit, which, you know, any other year, you would guess was something yelled by a man sleeping on the train. <laughs> he said that immigrants need intense ideological vetting, which is just rude, because as a liberal, we're supposed to be the thought police. <laughs> he also said that the Pope had no right criticizing his proposed border wall with Mexico because, and I quote, the Vatican City has, quote, walls like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> As if being okay with any wall anywhere means that you are unable to criticize walls as a concept. <laughs> he softened his famously insane immigration policy for literally one day and one day only. Why would he do that, Tom? I'm glad you asked, because I have the reason. It was the same day Ann Coulter released her book, In Trump We Trust, in which she says the only thing that she would not forgive Trump for is softening his immigration policy, which she was then forced to do. Make Mexico great again also. Guys, I, at this point I'm just listing facts without commentary because, oh my god, this man is a cartoon baby who is just intensely dull and stupid. And yes, might be my next president. Seriously, it's close. How is it close? And all of this happened in the same month, remember. For real, I'm not lying. It doesn't seem possible, and yet I'm leaving a lot out. Like a ton. Like how a Trump staffer threatened other co-workers with a gun, uh, and the campaign was just like, yes, it's probably fine. <laughs> you know, I'm not here to tell you what to do, vote for Hillary. Um, I'm not going to stand here and lecture you about, you know, what's your duty as an American citizen vote for Hillary. Um, <laughs> I know there are reasons to doubt uh, Ms. Clinton. Her email scandals have uncovered the shocking truth that when you are Secretary of State, many people want to talk to you. <laughs> I know, it's hard to trust a person like that. But here's what blows my goddamn mind every time. Even in every fucking thing Trump's basement squad of anime avatar Nazis says about her is true, it still would be insane to trot out that old fucking catchphrase, she's just as bad as Trump. Because dudes, I don't know if you were listening earlier, I don't know if you've been paying attention, no human being on earth is just as bad as Donald fucking Trump. Pause for applause. I just want to take a moment to say how wise I think it is to open comedy shows with just angry political screeds. Screeds, my brand, really. You know me, you know I love screeds. All about screeds. And I think with all this exhausting news about Trump, it's good to get some contrast. Look at a real, real statesman with strong conservative values. I'm talking, of course, about Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, who probably has a lot to say about the state of the country, uh, the Republican Party that he leads, and uh, its campaign. <laughs> I'm joking, of course he doesn't. He is a coward. Uh, according to his Twitter, the biggest issue this month is that Solyndra declared bankruptcy, 
five years ago. <laughs> Don't remember what Cylindra is? Well, silly you, how could anyone forget? It's apparently the most important thing going on in the Republican Party right now. Please overlook the fact that it, again, happened five years ago. That is immaterial. Paul Ryan would never talk about anything but the most important issues. He is certainly nothing for him to dodge. Motherfucker's acting like a kid whose dad made the school ban Pokemon cards and now he's trying to get all the other kids to think about anything else. <laughs> but honestly, I'm really sorry to be leaning so hard on the election stuff, but it was all I could think about this August, as depressing and draining as that is. But, you know, no month is without good news. I always try to end these with something positive. Uh, we learned this month from a representative of Trump's Hispanic outreach team that Mexican culture is so inherently dominant that it'll take over America if left unchecked, leading to, and I quote, taco trucks on every corner. <laughs> Number one, that's a statement layered with such profound self-hatred that I'm honestly concerned for how that man feels in the small, lonely hours of the night. <laughs> Number two, good call on the undisputable truth that cornering the independent food service industry is definitely just the most dominant of alpha moves. <laughs> Whenever I go up to a food truck and I'm like, Sirrah, prepare my food, all I can think about is like, damn, it sucks to have so little power in this situation. <laughs> but most importantly, number three, and I think you all know this, fucking Tommy Trust in every corner of Donald Trump loses. Holy shit, universe, thank you so much for reminding us that hope is real and something good can happen, if only we're so lucky. Anyway, enough of me. Our first op-ed reader of the night uh, works and teaches for Second City. Please welcome Liz Royce. guys, so um, I'm going to be really 2016 here and hold my laptop, or maybe more like 2010, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, cool, okay, so uh, this summer I got really into binge watching The Good Wife. Um, just a, uh, <laughs> a note, there are some spoiler alerts for that show coming up, in case you have not watched season five. Uh, from 2013, you might want to cover your ears. <laughs> um, so yeah, this summer I got sucked into binge watching The Good Wife. Uh, my boyfriend's parents came to stay with us this summer, and um, it seemed like the safest show for us all to watch, uh, with little chance of it being too sexy, <laughs> or too fast-paced for a retiree couple from Cleveland. Uh, for those of you who have never seen it, Juliana Margulies plays Good Wife, Alicia Florek, wife of Chicago State's attorney, Peter Florek, who is played by the jolly green giant with plastic hair, Chris Knopf. Uh, <laughs> most of you probably remember him as Mr. Big from Sex and the City. So Peter goes to jail on corruption charges, but not before sleeping with an indeterminate number of prostitutes. Enough so that it's a problem, but not enough to make Alicia say, fuck this noise and burn the whole thing to the ground. <laughs> Instead, she dusts off her collection of lady suits sweeps her hair into a sensible bob, and goes back into the workforce after a 14-year hiatus so her kids don't starve. She manages to snag a job as a lawyer in the firm operated by her old flame Will, 
who gives her the job because he wants to bone her, not the 26-year-old associates also vying for the job, which in the context of this show makes him a good guy. <laughs> Throughout the seven seasons of this show, characters pass in and out all with some sort of opinion about whether Alicia was strong or stupid for standing by her husband, whether she was empowered or weak for sleeping with her boss after many, many fruitless episodes of them making moon eyes at each other while discussing tort law, all the while we, the audience, just want them to bang their, each other's brains out. Has she and her husband slid into some kind of compromise-driven partnership that masquerades as a marriage, I found myself drinking Pinot Grigio like the true white woman I was, screaming at the screen for her to divorce him. Somewhere into the fifth or sixth season, when I finally stopped waiting for Juliana to leave Mr. Big, and they killed off Josh Charles, so I didn't wonder why I was still watching the show, Huma Abedin divorced Anthony Weiner. Yeah. yeah. So it was like life imitating a lukewarm form of art. <laughs> Huma, with her beautiful Princess Jasmine face, who stood by her disgraced husband for years as his unfortunately apropos name got dragged through the press. We knew little about her when his sexting scandal started in 2011 and continued during his New York mayoral campaign in 2013, other than she was Hillary Clinton's top aide. But she was a stoic reminder of the countless women who came before her, and unfortunately who will also come after her, who stand by their philandering, powerful husbands in the interest of helping these men's careers. There was a renewed interest in the story this summer when the documentary Wiener was released. Uh, we again had to watch more footage of this poor woman stand silently by her husband as he tried to talk about literally anything else besides grainy pictures of his dick floating in cyberspace. By this point, Huma was serving as vice chair to Hillary Clinton, the first major party female presidential candidate. But here we were watching her trying not to look like she was going to puke when the press asked her husband about his sexting alter ego Carlos Danger. <laughs> comes full circle jerk as we head into an election that will hopefully result in America electing its first female president. Yes. Also a disgraced woman who cloaked herself in the armor of tailored pantsuits, her bobbed hair glinting under hot camera lights, standing by her husband while he tried to convince all of us that getting his dick sucked wasn't actual sex. Like how Huma stood by her husband as he explained how sending pictures of his penis to other women wasn't actual sex. How a lot of us, myself included, drew a distinction between Bill and Anthony, the fallible men, and Bill and Anthony, the capable legislators. Marriage existed in its earliest form as a way for women to avoid the worst kinds of lives. Like, they were either in two situations. One, they were tethered to their fathers as they grew old and less valuable. Or two, they were penniless old maids unable to earn money because they couldn't hold jobs or property. Somewhere in the relatively very recent past, marriage transformed into a romantic gesture, but it had many of the same holdovers. It's still men who most often make the offer of marriage to a woman. It is most often given after receiving parents' permission. It's women who give up their names and take their husbands. It's Fathers who walk daughters down the aisles to the new men's, men in their life after spending $50,000 for a party to celebrate the occasion. It's not as blatant as treating her for 40 gold pieces and a goat, but the whip of patriarchy is still there. It's no wonder that after all women accomplish, their lives are still looked at through the lenses of their husband's actions. 
For better or for worse, till death do they part, they become inextricably linked to what their husbands have done, especially if their husbands are men in power. The same cannot be said for the reverse. Name one woman in power who banged an intern, fucked a prostitute, or te texted pussy pics to staffers and then apologized to her constituents while her husband stood silently by her side, wearing some ingratiatingly bland outfit his wife's political operatives picked out for him because it looked inoffensive and meek. It's because this has literally fucking never happened. So perhaps it is progress that Huma finally got her divorce, not forced to share the spotlight with her soon-to-be ex as she enters what could be one of the most pivotal times in U.S. history. She could serve on the staff to the first female president. The first female president who nearly 20 years after the fact could make her philandering husband the first first husband of the United States of America. But I think it will be real progress when we stop expecting these women to stand by their men as they continue to fuck up and fuck outside their marriages. And simply look at these women as strong, flawed, badass women who could su succeed and fuck it up for themselves without these men blocking their spotlights. Thanks. Hearing all that, seeing my sister and her fiance, no comment. Our next reader tonight is a writer and performer in Chicago by way of Austin, Texas. Her show, Ankle Boots, Absurd Miniature Memoirs, won Best in Fest at the Chicago Fringe Festival in 2014. She's done sketch and improv at The Annoyance. Uh, I.O. and the Crowd Theater, wrote and performed the comedic show All of Kate's uh, Horses and All of Kate's Men last year at The Annoyance. Uh, she's currently working on a solo show about, her words not mine, gross, over-emotional, unlikable women that will open later this year. Uh, please welcome Kayla Lane Freeman. off paper like it's 1996. <laughs> or separation of church and state. Because Texas is like the counting crows of the US news circuit. They only have three hits, and they just get played over and over. And like the counting crows, I wish I could say the reason we keep hearing them is because they are good. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is not the case. Yes, Texas is in the news for guns this month, because of a new law that went into effect as of August 1st. It's called Campus Carry, and it makes it legal for gun owners to bring their weapons into any university building. Yeah, I had some groans. <laughs> uh, although many people feel like this is egregious and this is absurd, I don't think it's particularly off-brand for Texas, a notoriously aggressive place. 
there's an anecdote to support this. Uh, I grew up in Texas, a little place called Hearst, Texas. And when I turned 16, I drove a 96 Acura Integra with a crappy purple paint job. And like any wannabe self-respecting stoner hippie who was too scared to actually do drugs, <laughs> I covered my car with puffy My Little Pony stickers. As, yeah, I get to clapping, you can clap. To any would-be Zach Braffs in the distance, <laughs> letting you know I can be your manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> I have just the right amount of personality to complete your quest, but not so much that you have to think about it. <laughs> uh, one time, while driving around on a Friday night, my friend Sam and I decided to pull over to an elementary school playground sit on the swings, talk about life with a capital L, because teenagers. <laughs> and we were shocked when out of nowhere, a group of, I don't want to be offensive and generalize and say rednecks, but I will say the ringleader of this group had a faded Tweety Bird t-shirt with the armpits cut down to his waist. So you can make your own conclusions. <laughs> But you say, Kayla, that sounds like a shirt I saw in Wicker Park earlier this evening. <laughs> but I mean, we're at a place called Cafe Mustache, so I should have known better. <laughs> but trust me, when I say this man's Tweety Bird t-shirt was not accompanied by cute ripped tights and an undercut and a tattoo of Millhouse from The Simpsons. <laughs> no. This guy and his two buddies, they look menacing. They came bounding towards Sam and I, hollering us and threatening to fuck us up. There were something. Uh, as you can imagine, I was shocked and confused. I didn't mention before now, but at this time, I was carrying a large fabric sunflower. This <laughs> 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 on brand. Um, my friend Sam was a lanky 14-year-old. He was the secretary of the anime club. And yeah, he had the gravitas as well as the hairstyle of Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> and he always wore a top hat, that too. So I got some flower, he's got a top hat, we're good. Um, and there are these men coming towards us. And uh, as we are seeing them approach the Tweety trailer trash trio, the guy says, you fucked up my house. I was like, what? Uh, you fucked up my house. We saw you driving. We know it was you who fucked up my house. And I don't know what I was alleged to have done, but I know that as these people approached us, they brandished a pool cue as a weapon. Uh, so in this now fucked up sort of jousting match, uh, Sam and I were about to get brandished with something you usually just see like in your uncle's basement or a Dave and Buster's. So... Long story short, I called the cops, they came, they took out their guns, because Texas, and when they realized the only weapon was a pool cue and a sunflower, and that we were all white, they put my guns. Uh, and they interviewed me, did you fuck up his house? No, I didn't fuck up his house. Great. Uh, they checked my car for weed, which was totally warranted because it's purple covered in ponies. Uh, did not have any. Uh, and then they sent the rednecks on their way. And I wasn't asked if I wanted to press charges, but to be fair,
there. He thought I fucked up his house. <laughs> so reason one to believe Texas notoriously aggressive place. If that's not enough to convince you because women's stories aren't real. Um, <laughs> I have some textual, some text evidence that Texas is an aggressive place. So let's talk trash. Literally, let's talk about littering. It's very fun, it's very funny. Um, let's talk about putting your trash in the can instead of throwing it out your car window. It's a very nice action, we can all agree, that's a good thing to do. Uh, it's not always convenient, I don't like to do it, sometimes I'm lazy. Uh, so many states have adopted catchy mottos to help remember to do this. Uh, for example, take pride in Florida. That was pretty good. Where is it? Let's pick it up, New York. Yeah, that's instructive. Tell me what to do. I will pick it up. Great. Uh, Oklahoma, keep our land grand. I don't know if that's good to begin with, but like, we'll go with it. Sure. Uh, West Virginia, make it shine. Which, it's West Virginia, but I think we should all hope and dream. Uh, and then there's Texas, which you probably know well. Their slogan is, don't mess with Texas. And that feels like a threat. I mean, what's going to happen to me if I throw my Funyun bag out the window of my Dodge Neon? What will happen if I mess with Texas? <laughs> I might get shot. Um, because as of August 1st, 2016, campus carry has gone into effect, meaning you can bring a handgun into any public university. And uh, Texas... They were the original OG, and by this I mean original gunmen. Uh, you see, Texas holds the distinction of being the location of the first American mass shooting. Fun fact, don't clap for that. That's terrible. You just hear the tone of like a fun fact, I'm just a classroom. Oh, like a have love. Okay, uh, no, first mass shooting happened in Texas in 1966. Uh, you see, before it became just a regular affair to see mass shootings in the news, it was a pretty big deal. Uh, what happened was Charles Whitman, who's a 25-year-old angry white dude, climbed to the top of the Texas clock tower, had a, um, what kind of gun? A uh, sniper rifle, that kind. Uh, he had a sniper rifle, and he murdered 15 people and injured several others. Uh, the day that the campus carry law went into effect August 1st, 2016, just coincidentally happened to be the 50th anniversary of this oh. mass shooting. So I say, September 11th is next week. Let's just give everybody free access to planes. <laughs> That's a great idea. That would never happen because you actually have to go to school and drive, drive a plane, fly a plane. <laughs> you have to take a test to fly a plane. You have to do all these things that you do not have to do in Texas to own a gun. Uh, did you know in 1966 there was a law in Texas that said no person in Texas may shoot a buffalo from a second story window? It's reasonable. <laughs> sure. Uh, did you know in 2016 that is still a law? Fair, okay. Uh, did you know in 2016 that's the most restrictive gun law Texas has? <laughs> Austin is mad about this. They're always a little mad that they are in Texas, but it's times like now they're especially angry. Uh, their status as a liberal bastion, although it's 
prideful, it's about as useful as a wet paper bag. Some <laughs> um, bag lumps or something on this. <laughs> She's like, I got caught in the rain. Um, supporters of the law say that students carrying guns on campus will reduce the threat of campus violence or mass shootings because, this is quoting the president of the NRA, the only thing that will stop bad guys with guns is good guys with guns. Which I think that sounds like something a 10-year-old would say. <laughs> but his language choice aside, I don't know that I necessarily disagree with him. Because sure, good guys with guns might be the only thing that can stop a mass shooter. But why should that good guy be Matthew Duggar from my comp lit class in the AK-47 he got from his cousin who works at Popeyes? <laughs> when I lived in Austin, there was a shooting threat on campus. At the time, I was working at a Jamba Juice across the street from the student union. There's a giant glass window and we could see the main strip into campus. When the threat was called in, we were instructed to gather the customers, get back in the freezer, kind of hide out. But before I was nestled back there in the crates of bananas, I saw a tank, a military-grade tank, go down the street towards the library. Uh, don't mess with Texas. <laughs> and I get it, a tank. That is absurd. That is really over the top. We don't need that. That's really too much. But um, no one died in 2010 except for the shooter who killed himself in the library. And that's why you're just hearing about it now. It was a tragedy, yes, but it wasn't a news item. And I don't know if I think the situation would have escalated if every frat boy and deer hunter and Anne Rand lover or just really passionate libertarian had his or her own gun that day. So professors on campus are worried that this new law will stifle free speech because if anyone can have a gun at any time, there's always a chance that something that could have been a discussion becomes a militarized conflicts. The law doesn't extend to private universities who are allowed to make their own decisions about whether or not to enact it. 38 of the 39 private colleges in Texas voted no to the law, which includes the largest Christian university in the world, Baylor University, and you know how much people who love the Prince of Peace love guns. <laughs> campus activist group is protesting the campus carry law by openly toting around dildos to contrast the offensiveness of a sex toy to the offensiveness of firearms on campus. Which, to be fair, that's a very evocative comparison, because I'm not going to lie, between a penis and a gun, there is only one I want you to unload all over my chest. <laughs> Some critics think that the protest is too silly or juvenile to actually make a difference. But I appreciate it because it feels like a true expression from a city that I really love. Because Austin's known for being weird. You've heard it, keep Austin weird. There's a lot of quirky things they do there. There's a party once a year to celebrate the dopamine-deprived donkey Eeyore from the Winnie the Pooh books. There's an annual comedy festival that does a mini-golf tournament. And there's like 30 kombucha places all within a one mile radius. And I don't, I don't get kombucha, I think it's really gross because no one wants their mouth on the fermented runoff fluid of like a tangly, wicked life form just stewing in its own juices. That's what my boyfriend said when I asked him to go down on me. <laughs> That's a slow burn gross one. <laughs> 
All right, and a dildo-fueled protest just feels right. You can quote me on that. Please just quote me on that. Um, unfortunately, no matter the tactic, I don't think protesting campus carry is likely to change it. Uh, too much of the state of Texas is in favor of laws like this, and unfortunately, until further notice, city of Austin is located in Texas. Despite this, I think it's important that people are protesting and saying something, because if protesting guns in school is weird, I don't think I want to be normal. Thanks. Thank you, Caroline Freeman. Awesome. Uh, for what it's worth about mass shootings, I, um, for this show, keep to sort of a running list of the major news stories of the month things that I think are interesting or, or important. Uh, so that, you know, if something gets missed, if someone doesn't talk about it in the op-eds, I can bring it up in my little thing in the beginning. I have to remind myself that mass shootings are actually important news events nowadays. I'm just like, oh, it's a mass shooting? Whatever. So, yeah, funny, right? Yeah. Next op-ed, let's move along from that. Uh, uh, this is a fellow who taught writing at DePaul University and was a member of the Southside-based sketch comedy group Girls Field Hockey. He also was a frequent guest host on my pop culture podcast. You don't understand, uh, but probably most importantly, he is just a terrible human mistake. Civilization's bane and uh, Christendom's worst failure. Everyone, please give a big hand for Joe Anderson. consensus among critics was that Suicide Squad was a movie. <laughs> and a thing you can spend money on. They also agreed that it was underwhelming. In response to early unfavorable reviews, a change.org petition emerged with the express purpose of shutting down Rotten Tomatoes because it aggregated unjust and bad reviews. It quickly amassed over 30,000 signatures. Let me come clean here. I'm addicted to reading about self-righteous fans. <laughs> it's not a healthy interest. It's basically a compulsion to pick out a mental scab. And since countless examples of toxic and outspoken fans are always a click away, I am simply flush with scabs. <laughs> Why am I like this? Was I hugged too much as a child, too little? Is it because I was grown in a tube and decanted too early? <laughs> It's because I once saw two grown men in a very public setting get into a screen match about Japanese cartoons. <laughs> this happened when I was 11 and like most of my developmental milestones, occurred at 129th and Costner at Swaparama. <laughs> <laughs> For those unfamiliar, Swaparama describes itself as the premier flea market experience in the tri-state area. <laughs> it is technically a flea market. 
but it is better described as an urban gold rush boomtown that instead of selling whiskey and nickel titty touches, specializes in rad shit that is clearly stolen. It is a good place to pick up car radios that fell off the back of a truck, or a pallet of athletic socks that also fell off the back of a truck. The Great Hall area, which typically houses over 400 different vendors, also sports a food court that serves some of the best pizza that ever fell off the back of a truck. <laughs> it is there I struggled with and found answers to some of life's greatest questions. For instance, what happens when you die? The answer is that a man in a tracksuit sells your bones out of the back of his conversion van. <laughs> the purpose of my trip to Swap Around was singular. Bootleg Dragon Ball Z VHSs. In a pre-Kazaa world, Swaparama was a solid way to get your hands on cartoons about people transforming into better versions of themselves to fight bad guys with similar powers or whatever. <laughs> In truth, there was, always a, uh, there was always multiple guys hawking this shit, a competing collective of cunning entrepreneurs eager to make a buck off the neckbeard and proto-neckbeard to the southwest side. As I handed those entrepreneurs my sweaty boy dollars, <laughs> A nearby gentleman commended me on my dope taste. <laughs> this didn't sit well with another human being staying, uh, hanging out nearby who countered thoughtfully with Dragon Ball Z is for fags. <laughs> I watched in awe as these two men got into it. I mean, they like really got into it. As if one, they could change the other's mind, and two, as if any of this shit mattered. During the spirited debate, a kid at a neighboring stall paid for a bowie knife and a katana with a fat stack of tens pulled from a paper bag and then rode off on his bike. <laughs> I spent the last 17 years chasing something good at that first high. And thanks to this insane petition to shut down a website because writers paid to write criticism about a comic book movie did their job, I found it. <laughs> All right, so let's address some logistical issues with the petition. Number one, a change.org petition literally has no power. All it does is provide proof that people are coalesced around a particular issue in the realm of policymaking. This is a powerful tool for democracy and can serve as a catalyst for change. But this isn't about policymaking. This is about the debated existence of a private business, and the only entity with the authority to shut down Rotten Tomatoes is Rotten Tomatoes. Shutting down operations is probably in conflict with the site's mission statement. <laughs> Number two, Rotten Tomatoes doesn't even fucking write reviews. It just aggregates them in one place. The modus operandi of this whole petition hinges on a very weak understanding of cause and effect. This is like setting fire to SeaWorld because your ex's new boyfriend likes to go fishing. <laughs> My weird fascination with this behavior is not so I can be like, don't people know that caring stuff about, uh, excuse me, caring about stuff is textbook jabroni behavior? No, it's because it is another example of a consumption in a fandom that is toxic and increasingly commonplace. I wouldn't go so far as to say that it represents a new normal, but it has become a static feature in the digital landscape, driven largely by social media. I was having trouble articulating my unease with this fact until I came across a tweet by writer and linguist Frederick DeBauer. Rather than try to paraphrase it, I'll just read the tweet verbatim. It's amazing trick how our culture is utterly saturated in geek stuff, but geeks still identify as this marginalized group. Like, holy shit, 
This sort of wisdom appeared just below sponsored content from Arby's, and that made discovering it then much more magical. <laughs> a good friend of mine, Dominic Mayer, is an editor at Consequence of Sound. He's actually here today. Dom, can you wave and stand up? Hey. Hey. Can, can everyone say hello to Dom, please? Uh, Dom, what happened when you wrote a nuanced and even-handed review of the Deadpool movie that ultimately arrived at the conclusion that it was fun, but just okay? People told me how I should kill myself on the internet, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sort of feedback isn't surprising, as evidenced by the Suicide Squad petition. People get defensive over any kind of property. When Disney bought Marvel, every single financial outlet trumpeted the choice of the genius acquisition, and it was. The consensus was basically people like superheroes, smart move Disney, but no, it's more than that. For a not insignificant part of the population, Disney bought a controlling share in people's motherfucking identities. And when identity is in play, the conversation will inevitably shift to the idea of authenticity, and that's where things get prickly. At the core of all this is an interesting discussion about the mainstreaming of geek culture. I've read a lot about it. It seems that the mainstreaming of geekdom means that crocheting and selling a bunch of shit with Jon Snow's face on it seems like a good way to buy a jet ski. <laughs> but people for it champion inclusion, which is a good thing, while those against it argue that packaging source material for mass consumption ruins it. A fair point. But I really think the unspoken issue here is that once something becomes mainstream, criticism against what was previously geeky and niche is no longer punching down, it is punching up. Those dire fans are losing the moral high ground and protection that comes with being a misunderstood subculture. Part of the problem is a language issue. We as a culture, we are a culture of consumers. And not to pull it down Draper here, but I think that is neither good nor bad, it just sort of is. <laughs> what is a problem is that culturally, we do a shitty job of making the distinction between a consumer of, say, Froyo versus a consumer of art. If you pay for something and it doesn't work, as a culture, we agree that you are justified in your efforts for recompense. The attitude on display with all the Suicide Squad nonsense and the worst type of fandom is similarly transactional. But since it's wrapped up in an identity, it's about setting transactional expectations for everyone, audience, critics, and surprisingly, even artists and creative, uh, creators themselves. Also last, last month, an interesting op-ed appeared in the Washington Post. Written by pop culture critic Alyssa Rosenberg, the article is titled, Art is about surrender. Stop asking for it to be custom tailored. I encourage everyone to read it. Not because it's groundbreaking, I feel the argument is a little too whimsical at times, but because it does a nice job encapsulating the pressure fandom exerts on creators, and by extensions, critics. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying fans shouldn't say stuff sucks. Saying stuff sucks to strangers on the internet is the digital version of the American dream. <laughs> but here's the thing. Being disappointed by something you pay for is a very valid and unfortunate part of life. However, People who are disappointed by things you like hold no power over you. Whoever started the Suicide Squad petition had realized this fact and has changed the petition's messaging, with, which now reads, you may enjoy a movie regardless of what the critics say about it. That's it. That's the whole petition. <laughs> but, although that's self-evident, it does show some intellectual growth happening there, which is fun. And in response to this growth, someone wrote, if you make or sign a petition like this, you should probably just kill yourself. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, Joe Anderson. Uh, all those things I said about Joe, about him being a, a mistake and a failure, those are all jokes. Joe's great, although he did accuse me of not being able to read this week. <laughs> Our next op-ed reader is a comedian and writer in Chicago. He writes for the Whiskey Journal. I don't really know anything about him other than that, just that uh, his shit makes me laugh a huge amount. Please welcome Patrick Riley. Hi. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, thanks to Tom for having me on this show. Thank you, Tom, and all the other performers who bravely came out and advocated you vote for one of the two capitalist parties <laughs> in our country. So brave of them. Just taking down the GOP. Um, Wow, this is all way high. Um, so while American political discourse reaches its basis depths, uh, I chose to look north for uh, news to discuss. And I actually, um, I edit a small uh, Toronto metropolitan area newspaper called the Kitchener-Waterloo Gazette. Um, <laughs> And so in August, uh, in the Toronto, uh, in Toronto, a man killed three people with a crossbow. And that kind of ignited this weird debate, like national, Canadian national debate over crossbow control and, you know, uh, laws and regulations around crossbows, etc. And, you know, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of compare what's going on up there with their deadly weapons, considering uh, uh, our gun problem has already been discussed. So I'm going to, hopefully this isn't blocking my jawline. Um, um, so. so this is, I'm an editor at this newspaper, and this is a, a letter to the editor that we received uh, kind of in the wake of, uh, that triple crossbow homicide, <laughs> which was not the name of my thrash band, uh, but it would be an awfully good one. Okay. So this is what this fellow had to say. Dear editors, ever since that fool in Toronto killed those folks, the lefties are making a whole big fuss about the ubiquity of crossbows as assault weapons, <laughs> and the need for increased regulation on crossbow and archery-related products. Now I know this is Canada, we can pretty much all agree that guns are crazy. But crossbows, that shit is awesome. Now many Canadians depend on crossbows for their livelihoods. I'm talking game hunters, home defenders, target practice enthusiasts with really sensitive neighbors. The list goes on and on and stops right about there. But these are important folks. I mean, is there anything like the rush of tracking an elk until you can smell its pheromones instead of sniping it with lead and metal from a distance like some goddamn coward? <laughs> now, the anti-crossbow lobbyists are also pointing to Canada's so-called crossbow-obsessed culture to prove that this legislation needs to be passed. 
Oh yeah? Well, who doesn't get amped when they say, see, Hugh Jackman snipes some vampire jerks in 2004's Van Helsing? Also, it's, it's perfectly natural for people, children even, to be fascinated by the crossbow's strange and visceral killing power. I know my boys can't stop talking about it. The problem isn't too many crossbows, it's that not enough people have crossbows slung on their shoulder at the wedding. And if you think having a seven pound bow on your back is going to look weird and cumbersome on your way to work, then tell me what's so smooth about your doctors wearing ass. <laughs> the only argument you could possibly have against an odd and informed citizenry are your underdeveloped forearms. Do some curls and join the revolution. <laughs> Who knows how many criminals are secretly packing these same weapons that you fear? You should see the, the bootleg uh, pocket bows, whoa, that they sell on the deep web. That's not part of the letter. That's me talking. <laughs> totally. Uh, so the only way to fight these baddies is to make sure law-abiding citizens can neutralize the threat with a dozen carbon fiber bolts to the chest. <laughs> also, can we talk about how much cooler it would be to run errands if everyone outside was strapped like a steampunk mercenary? <laughs> Also, I mean, a little editorializing here myself, but I mean, all machismo aside, I think if there was an armed altercation between two cross, two or more crossbow-wielding uh, citizens, like eventually, uh, everyone's arms would just get tired. Uh, <laughs> this, this is where this guy really goes in. Uh, quote. It is unfortunate but predictable that the fervently anti-crossbow administration of pretty boy Justin Trudeau <laughs> would attempt to use this national tragedy to disarm responsible archers across our nation. If that guy thinks that his prominent cheekbones and well-maintained hairdo are going to be mobilized against our right to bear arms, he has another thing coming. Two weeks ago, you would, you would have never read anything about problems with crossbows and their legality. Granted, that is likely linked to their extremely quiet method of killing. But I digress. <laughs> the people trying to take away our crossbows don't know the first thing about them. They demand lower legal draw weights, and the only thing that law will do is ensure that every buck and criminal from here to Vancouver is brutally made instead of efficiently killed. <laughs> Lowering legal drawing, that sounds like something I would be dinner with venison would say as an escape tactic. <laughs> you want responsible bodybuilders to have less firepower? You're in cahoots either with criminals or wildlife, and I trust neither. <laughs> Critics also overlook the role that crossbows play in defending our homes. Any attempt to delay the crossbow purchasing process puts our families at risk of home invasion. If there's one thing that thieves love, it's a house without a medieval killing machine. <laughs> and if the home defense situation doesn't seem dangerous enough, 
the entire our nation's game hunters could lose their lives. Okay, imagine creatures out there in the forest, if they caught wind of any crossbow stifling legislation, they would become unbearably audacious and arrogant in their ways. <laughs> Who knows how many garden plots would be obnoxiously plotted over by hooves? Well, how this family waits for their permit to be processed by a bloated state bureaucracy. If you are for the restriction of crossbows, you must also support large, overconfident mammals who harass Canadian families and behave in a generally insufferable manner. You're also for the dismantling of time-honored time hunting traditions in this country. All my pleasant crossbow memories are threatened by your ignorance. That's the one I'm like on my 16th birthday, when I got my first ACOG scope, and I used it to kill my ex-boyfriend's dog. Only a monster would try to take that away from me. Forget about my memories, forget about yard maintenance. Think about the snotty attitude that would develop in most bucks if they knew that humans had no tools to enforce their dominion. <laughs> this guy uh, sent a really weirdly formatted email. <laughs> also, uh, someone mentioned that they were reading on paper. This is actually papyrus, so we're going even, going even farther back. It's, it's nice. Hard to find a printer. As far as the accessibility of ammunition is concerned, arrows are expensive and I can't afford to go on a killing spree. <laughs> Crossbows are also crucial for defending ourselves against tyrannical government. And to any of you who would doubt a trained archer's ability to defend themselves against the large state military, you seriously underestimate how good I am at climbing trees. <laughs> Now before you go labeling me some neoconservative firebrand, I want to reiterate my stance that guns are silly, there's nothing wholesome about them, they're scary and bullets make me feel weird. <laughs> look, I just think that crossbows look cool, I don't want to keep mine, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. That was about what I was expecting. <laughs> Our last op-ed reader of the evening, uh, she works with The Onion, she's written in uh, all, in the all rather, uh, Brooklyn Magazine, Deadspin, and so many more. Uh, and she was recently named by the Chicago Magazine, uh, the city's best rising comic. <laughs> A lot of pressure. Uh, please welcome Fran Hoffner. Joe is talking about threats and fans online. Um, when Tom was promoting this event, he linked to an article I wrote where I jokingly said, no one in Brooklyn has ever had sex. Um, someone in the comments that piece told me to literally kill myself. Um, imagine being so defensive of Brooklyn, the entity. Um, Jesus Christ. Um, 
So I, we've had a lot of heavy topics tonight, and I'm here uh, to talk to you about pasta. Um, but I also want to talk a lot more about pasta. I want to talk to you about love. I want to talk about love and food and men and women and different women and other men and sex and carbohydrates. And also, if you'll indulge me, I do want to talk a little bit about mayo. Um, but let's go back to August when we were all much younger and hotter. Um, when an article was published on the esteemed women's website Refinery29, which I would argue is the new Cosmo, um, with the headline, This pasta is the hookup equivalent of engagement chicken. If this sentence doesn't make sense to you, it's because you are a boy. <laughs> so um, I will break it down for you bit by bit. Um, this pasta, pasta is a food, um, is the hookup equivalent. Hooking up is dating, but you're not nice to each other. Uh, an engagement chicken um, is sort of where we actually should begin this. Um, engagement chicken. It's a semi-old myth, um, a wives' tale, if you will, uh, from the early 1980s um, about a rotisserie chicken recipe that is supposed to be so good it will make your boyfriend propose to you, if you make it for him. Um, the pretty simple rotisserie chicken recipe with just like lemon and rosemary. Um, so it's not even hard if women are really looking to get engaged. Um, but we don't live in 1982, um, we live in 2016, so we don't really care about marriage engagements because um, proposals are anti-feminist and engagement rings are anti-feminist. Um, so the only thing we have left uh, is non-committal sex with people we hate. <laughs> Which is where fuck pasta comes in. Um, so Refinery29 published a recipe for a penne alla vodka, which is the hookup equivalent of an engagement chicken, which means essentially the pasta will make your date want to fuck you. First, let's ignore that no one wants to have sex after they eat pasta. Let's get that right out the gate. The second thing we should ignore is that I will say it is crazy that any other woman's publication, Refinery29 included, will also spend most of their time telling you the one food not to eat is pasta, <laughs> if you want to be hot. Um, and let's also ignore that this anti-pasta tirade is coming from someone who looks like they only eat pasta. Um, but let's instead pay attention to the fact um, that it's August and it's September now and it's 90 degrees. And I don't want to eat penne alla vodka, nor do I want to cook it in the kind of weather we're having right now. And for that matter, I don't want to make a rotisserie chicken either. Both of those sound extremely gross to me right now. Um, and I'm also like not saying that this recipe isn't for me or like I can't cook it. I'm just saying um, that there is a different kind of food that has always represented like what I eat with my loved ones and what I make for people that is good. And that food is egg salad. <laughs> and it's also tuna salad and chicken salad and the German potato salad, which is like made with mayo, but is also hot. Um, um, because when you were raised in an all-American Midwest Jewish Germanic household, 
the foods you eat are coated with mayo. Um, they are drenched in it. Um, and they are cold. <laughs> they are cold foods. Um, and if you mix them kind of together, they all taste the same, which makes me feel safe. <laughs> and this is the kind of food I want to give to someone who I want to have sex with. <laughs> And so I am going to give you a recipe for an egg salad lovingly made for a person you um, want to bone you on a third date. <laughs> this is a tried and true recipe passed down through the women of my family um, in an attempt to get male-loving adults to fuck each other, you know? <laughs> so I hope this works for you. Um, you're going to take six eggs. You're going to hard boil them. Then you're obviously going to let them cool down. Um, you don't have to do it in the fridge. You can just do it kind of in... Um, sort of the open air. Then um, you're gonna take um, a bowl full of mayo, and I would love to tell you I know how much I use, but I don't. Um, you're gonna take a huge amount, and then you're gonna peel um, and get rid of the shells, and then dump the hard-boiled eggs into the bowl. And then you're just gonna kind of squeeze them apart in chunks. And if this doesn't make you visualize like sticking your whole hand in a vagina, then I don't know like, what this does for you. Um, and then from here, you can kind of mix in whatever you want. It helps to have salt, it helps to have scallions or celery. My secret fuckable ingredient is dill. <laughs> dill is amazing. Dill is so good. And you will thank me for the suggestion of dill when uh, you are getting railed at some point. Um, but I also just don't want you to think that I am like anti-sex or anti-pasta. I'm incredibly pro-both. Um, but I am also even more overwhelmingly um, pro-Excel. I just also don't think you really have to work to have sex. Does that make sense? Like, I don't think making pasta for someone is any more of a deal breaker than making an egg or a tuna or a potato salad. And I also think that you can court people over burgers or fries or like picking up candy off the floor or like whatever it really takes as long as you are also like respectful and nice <laughs> to the person you've been spending time with. Uh, that I think is maybe the actual important thing. I don't even think you have to be good looking to have sex. That is like a popular conspiracy I really... Um, I would love if Refinery29 just published an article that said, you don't have to be hot to have sex. Um, but I think we're a couple years away from that in terms of the feminist movement. Um, the thing is, um, you can cook whatever. You can cook pasta. You can cook egg salad. I just want us to be able to essentially um, have our pasta and fuck it, too. Um, thank you so much. Goddamn. Um, <laughs> before, before we move on to our debate, I just want to notice that you may or may not have passed by a little, a little money jar on your way here for donations. The show is technically free. If you don't, can't afford it or don't have cash, that's fine. But uh, all of the money goes directly to people who are writing and performing comedy that you're, you're consuming. So you don't support the arts. Give them money. Otherwise, what kind of person are you? A bathroom. I want that. Anyway, so there's always at least one new story every month that one op-ed can't cover. We need to have both sides of the story, and we need our audience to decide 
uh, which side is correct? So let me just introduce our debaters straight off, straight out the gate. Uh, first off, we got a goddamn comedy dynamo. I love saying dynamo. Uh, who's just on all of the shows? She's got she's got writing on reductress, uh, above average. Just so many places. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, also, this week uh, debuted a podcast about weird history called uh, "Wait, What Happened." It's been on this show a bunch of times. Stephanie Weber. Stephanie, I understand you've debated our other debater already this week. Yeah, I already beat the shit out of Dan in debate on Sunday night. Utopia versus Utopia, baby. Utopia for the win. <laughs> Hope you nerds are ready. It's a lot of pressure for our second debater who's it. Comedian and producer of the great stand, or not stand-up, storytelling show, We Still Like You. Um, he also, his Twitter account, Wolf Twitter, at a slash sick of wolves, is like legit one of my favorite pieces of comedy writing going on right now. I urge all of you to follow it. Uh, Dan Sheehan. I thought of it as more of a soft beating last time, but that's fine. It's all, it's all right. <laughs> so our debate topic this month, we all know that the University of Chicago released a letter saying to incoming freshmen that there will be no trigger warnings and no safe spaces at the University of Chicago. And that's all well and good in theory. But we have to figure out how they're actually going to enforce that. Stephanie, how should the University of Chicago enforce their no trigger warnings, no safe spaces policy? Uh, by hiring scary guys uh, to go hang out on campus and yell personalized slurs at students while they walk by. <laughs> Dan, what's your, what's your side? Uh, we'll replace all student housing with spooky haunted houses. <laughs> So the way this debate works, if you're going to have both of you produce, or not produce, perform three-ish minutes of opening statements you prepared in advance, you will then have to field questions from me that you've never seen before. And, uh, and then afterwards, you're going to do your closing statements. It's pretty simple. Uh, Dan, why don't you try to scrounge your dignity back up off the goddamn floor by going first? I need to open up a disclaimer. I, I have sneezed seven times today, and I've been blessed for each one, so if it happens in the midst of this, just know that I do not deserve it. I'm not sure what I'm allergic to, but the Lord is giving me enough attention. Gone is the safe space, the social justice reign of terror, the shadow over college campuses. It's over. It hung for simply too long, and the people have spoken. The people are free, as the pendulum once swung so far in the direction of safety and peace. Now it must swing in the other direction, to chaos and nightmares. No more is the college campus where a student can simply walk home and go to bed. No, no, no. All student housing will be converted into spooky haunted houses filled with pioneer ghosts. As a nation, this is the only way we can begin to heal. You have to understand this. First off, let's get down to the facts. College students already have it too good. 
let's look at it. They're in the pride of their lives. It's the best time of their lives. They're in their prime, physically in peak condition, probably still getting money from home, not paying for health insurance. They're basically a bunch of 18-year-old kids paying $100,000 for a sex party that they won't actually have to pay until they're 25. So I don't have any sympathy at all. <laughs> they deserve hundreds of thousands of wandering souls, shambling, wandering the earth, looking for an attempt to find answers and scream at them so that they understand that life's a nightmare. We get it. <laughs> Listen, I understand you guys. You're probably sitting there right now with some questions. What would the point of this be? Why is this necessary? Who hurts you, Dan? <laughs> What if my frail son, Trevor, is afraid of ghosts? <laughs> well, I actually do have some answers for you. Uh, in order, it would be awesome. Your children are frail. My high school girlfriend, Maggie, and too bad, Trevor! You yeah, had too good for too long! <laughs> Thank you so much. To hang out around campus, yelling personalized slurs at students while they walk by. <clears throat> the real world is hard! It's a tough, brutal place full of big, bad daddies and rude, crude dudes! <laughs> How else do we want our hot, fresh co-eds to learn that truth? <laughs> Yeah. 
model our babies into safe spaces because they don't exist in the real world, with the exception of a Panera Bread, <laughs> a treasure of a place that has soups, salads, sandwiches, bagels, and dessert. <laughs> we have to hit our hot young co-eds in the face with inconvenient truths as hard as glass bottles. We have to destroy their spirits so that they can go on to destroy our futures. And I believe the children are the future. And I believe that Panera Bread is a great restaurant. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderfully done to both of you. Before I get into the questions, uh, if either of you have any, have any general rebuttals to your opponent's opening statements, feel free to take this opportunity. If you don't, that's fine. I actually do believe that this is all about our taught sexy youth. And, and <laughs> I'm in agreement as well. It's about our tight, hard body youth. As long as the teens are hot, America has a future. <laughs> Dan, I'm going to field the first question your way. So most, you know, the Halloween-style haunted houses put a lot of effort in to make sure that everyone going through them uh, is never in any real danger. Uh, of course, at University of Chicago, it is not permitted for any space to be safe. <laughs> so how will you make sure that these haunted house dorms are, like, literally dangerous? Okay, well, uh, actually, the idea of, uh, of anyone not dying was off the table to begin with. <laughs> I would have required major adjustments in both budget and manpower. Uh, I, I was going to start with a lot of amulets. Um, cursed, not yet cursed, soon to be cursed, belonging to the recently deceased. You just get a fistful of those babies, you throw them in a dorm. You do that, you buy the, they sell Ouija boards at Target, man. They're out there. You can just buy haunted shit at your local Target now. It's a capitalist society, baby. We even got old peasant's bones for sale at this point. <laughs> Get them in there, you get the kids playing their teen games. It doesn't matter what the game is as long as there are hormones in the air, you know what I'm saying? And so you do that, and uh, honestly, yeah, students are gonna die. I mean, unless there's one that's like a hot virgin, but like in a virginal hot way, then they might like be covered in blood but alive. Like a virgin you wanna fuck. Yeah, like, like a very adult. Yeah. One you're like, you're like, but well, maybe not forever. Oh, like, everyone's acting like they haven't seen Hocus Pocus and jacked off to it. <laughs> It's real. It's out there. Uh, so yeah, the answer would be a lot of dead students, uh, a lot of letters home. <laughs> Stephanie, uh, I, I gotta ask you this. So uh, af after a while, after the school year gets rolling, these students are going to start to know where these guys are. Uh, how they can avoid them, how they can mentally prepare for the slur, which in a way, they're sort of building their own trigger warnings. Unacceptable. <laughs> what kind of kooky, exciting hiding places are, do you propose to hide these dudes so that they won't be expected? Yeah, the University of Chicago is a big campus, and uh, there's all kinds of places they can hide. And I don't think that they should just be confined to the campus. I think that they can hang out at bus stops, they can hang out at the L, the one that's near there, I don't really know. The hospital, like any old place, you know what I mean? There's like a lot of bushes, there's a lot of foliage down there at the campus. There's plenty of room for these dudes to hide. That's all I have. Dan, I gotta ask you, each dorm, 
you know it's got to be different because a student visiting his friend in another dorm has to have a fresh experience of terror and dread that they've never seen before. Uh, so what kind of different spooky themes do you propose for different dorms? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. All right, so, all right, here's the thing is America's just got a cornucopia of its own folk monsters right off the bat. Like, it's not just going to be ghosts. Like, I don't want to go vanilla on you guys here. Like, sure, ghosts are like an easy starting point because they've got a lot to say and not a lot of time to say it. Just getting infinite time to say it. So much time to say it. That's a gap on my part. Can read about that in the blogs? Now, we're going to get sea monsters in some of those for sure. Uh, we're going to make some of those aquatic dorms. Uh, and hey, uh, don't worry about it, you know, first full moon of every month, we're dealing with werewolves. Lycanthropy is going to be a real big issue on campus. Because uh, here's the thing about werewolves, they pay for themselves over time. We're looking at this like taxpayers are paying this money, so it's like every werewolf that bites another kid is one less safe space nerd and one more active werewolf. <laughs> Stephanie, the University of Chicago is obviously, they, they got, they're flush. They got money. They're not going to spare any expense hiring a workforce of terrifying verbal abusers. Where do you propose they find these guys, and, and what do you look for in your perfect applicant? I'm glad you asked. Um, my grandfather, uh, John Weber, he, um, he knows a lot of guys. <laughs> One more quick question for you before I ask you both the final question. Uh, what are your feelings on mummies, and what do mummies uh, bring to the haunted house experience unique to them, if anything? Wow. Here's the problem with mummies, is if you, if you take away all that wrapping, there might be like a good king under there, and that's not scary enough. A benevolent king wrapped in a silly outfit? I'm not handling that. I'm down with mummies as long as the king was a truly horrible man. Wonderful. I have one question that I want you both to answer before we get to closing statements, and that question is, uh, well actually there's a lot of setup for it, so wait a minute. Either one of your proposals is going to get rid of trigger warnings and safe spaces for University of Chicago students, that's just given. How do you propose to make it just as unwelcoming, scary, and hostile a place for the administration as well? proposal is so that the administration feels powerful again because they have been a state in a state of fear uh, because the students have power because they know things that the administration doesn't because they're old and dumb and don't like know how to use Twitter like it's so easy to figure out what trigger words are and how to use them uh, so I have I, I major that this won't make them afraid at all unless the students can somehow figure out ways to become braver, stronger, truer, tighter, and hornier.
what this comes down to is a battle as old as time. It's young versus old, taut and sexy versus old but still sexy. You know what I'm saying? When you're young and idealistic, you're, you know, you're pretty tough to penetrate up there. It's tough to get into your head and be like, the world's a nightmare with old people. All it takes is a mirror and a bad day. Just be like, this is what you've become! Like, that's it, man. That's all you need. Just time and mirrors. <laughs> There's some primo question answering, you guys. Let's, let's finish this off with our closing statements. Dan, you go first. All right. Your children are weak. <laughs> <laughs> they spend so much time in their safe spaces, having genuine appreciation for their fellow man, and learning how to fully accept themselves in a modern and inclusive way. But they forgot that life's supposed to be a nightmare. Life's supposed to be a big nightmare. Until recent times, nothing was safe. There's nowhere you could find peace. Were there safe spaces in the 1600s? Not a chance. And the hundreds of horrifying pioneer ghosts in their house would be more than happy to explain to them exactly why there were no safe places. Listen, while safe spaces sought to make people check their privilege, these haunted houses seek to check the biggest privilege of all. Being alive. Live with. Liquid is huge. <laughs> Think about it. For 2,000 years, life was just hard and bad. Life was just terrible. Think about it. Think about it. If you put the whole of human existence on a calendar, let's deal with the grass Tyson. This it's right there. The space of time when Panera Bread existed is just the last minute of the last day of December. Look around you. I bet you're feeling pretty alive. Your heart's beating, your eyes are blinking, and if you were in a mood for a Panera Bread chopped chicken cob, you could get one. <laughs> well, guess what, fool? It's time to check that livelage, because for each one of you, if you go out there and enjoy one of Panera's oft-ignored desserts like the sugar cookie, there are 15 dead people that can't because they're such ghosts. <laughs> so consider this next time you go out in the town looking for a bread bowl full of New England clam chowder. Consider that not everyone can be safe. Not everything can be a safe space. Not everyone's a Panera Bread. If everything's Panera Bread, then nothing's Panera Bread. Thank you for your time. Those were excellent points. But in closing, people are mean. The world is bad. And the sooner students learn that, within their face verbal assault, the better. <laughs> the only real refuge that we have as a society available to us from this soul-crushing world is a Panera Bread Cafe restaurant. <laughs> we have to teach the youth about this cold, hard truth now. Now is the time to seek solace in a half-sandwich, half-soup deal. <laughs> it's now or never. You can enjoy a multitude of bagels and coffee with a plethora of cream cheese flavors. You can indulge in a dessert like an orange scone. Where else can you find that solace? That escape from being called such nasty things by my grandpa's friends. <laughs> he hates all races equal. Um, <laughs> at Panera, you can get a variety of salads and sandwiches that feature flavors from around the world. It's truly a place where racism
aside these silly arguments. These arguments, which, by the way, are not even at odds with each other. <laughs> They're both good ideas. <laughs> They're really good. We should put aside these differences, and we should we should break a bread that comes as a side to every Um, 
Anyway, yeah, I've been Tom Harrison. This has been Skewer, and thank you all for coming. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Skewer podcast. If you liked what you heard, uh, you can go to a live show, or again, every first Wednesday of the month at Cafe Mustache in Chicago. Um, you can also like us on Facebook. Uh, just look up the Skewer. Uh, you can uh, email us if you want to be on the show, maybe, at skewerchicago at gmail.com. Uh, you can also just subscribe to this podcast, you know, on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all the places that podcasts are, you know how podcasts work. Uh, leave us a review or a rating if you want. That would be great. We'd love that. Uh, in any case, we'll see you next month. Thanks again for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>